Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Four months ago, there was a modest press release out of Think Tank America. This would be the Peterson Institute brand. It was a wonderful press release. Douglas Irwin and Mary Lovely joined Peterson Institute for International Economics. Many of you will know Professor Irwin of Dartmouth. Uh, perhaps fewer Mary Lovely of Syracuse University, who is absolutely definitive on intellectual transfer across nations. And she joins us uh, this morning with the Peterson Institute on tariffs and such. Mary, what's the number one thing we get wrong in our tariff analysis or discussion 2018 vintage? I think the biggest misconception is the extent to which the trade between the United States and China happens uh, via multinationals, via foreign firms operating in China. To a large extent, it is uh, supply chain trade. What does that mean? Is that just more amorphous or harder to get our hands on that it's within the manufacture of products? Well, it, it has a lot of implications for how the U.S. Uh, is either helped or hurt by these tariffs. First of all, when we when we place tariffs on these types of goods, we're not we're almost indirectly trying to get at the Chinese. We're first off hitting mainly our allies' operations in China. Mm. Secondly, we're hurting our own corporations, the companies that employ people in the United States, by raising their costs because the uh, the overwhelming majority of the goods right. that were hit with tariffs are inputs to our production processes. I mean, Catherine Rampol in the Washington Post has made this huge distinction, folks, between finished goods and the inputs. Give us an example of what an input would be. Is that like a distributor in a car? Absolutely. It could be a distributor to car. It could be semiconductors that we originally exported to China coming back to us after they've been tested and packaged. It can be auto parts, although primarily well, it's not. <clears throat> primarily it's electronics. Let's go right there. We make a semiconductor in California. It gets shipped to China. Or what do they do? They bless it and pour holy water on it? What do they, what do <laughs> I they do? I doubt if it's holy water, Tom. <clears throat> what do they do? They test it, they package it, they send it back. In a saran wrap thing, it comes off a thing in Long Beach, and that's the input that's taking jobs away from America, right? Well, in the rhetoric it is. In reality, it's not. Firms yeah. that, that uh, have offshored have added jobs in the U.S. The problem is that there are different jobs than the jobs that are, that are destroyed by uh, changes in the global economy. So the jobs are moving toward uh, the more highly skilled mm -hmm. folks. They're moving away from sort of the use of uh, physical labor. But at the same time, we're seeing exactly the same changes happening with changes in technology in firms. And, and we've all heard a great deal about coming robotization of, of the factory floor. So technology shocks are hitting us at the same time that China has opened up and also made it easier to offshore to them. So, Mary, you say China's opened up. To what extent has the Chinese economy opened up over the last decade? The Chinese economy has opened up quite dramatically. They lowered their tariffs quite a bit uh, to well below 10 percent with the agreement uh, that was made between the U.S. and China for them to join the WTO. 
they've opened up in terms of decreasing the number of sectors in which you have to uh, participate in a joint venture to invest in China. We hear a lot about joint ventures and how they're the conduit for technological theft from the United States. But in fact, they've decreased dramatically the number of sectors in which you need to have a joint venture. And recently, uh, Xi Jinping mentioned or offered to open up the automobile sector to wholly yeah. owned subsidiaries. Mary, would it be fair to say that they've opened up things they've started to dominate? For instance, the auto sector is a great example. For many manufacturers, they've had to take the manufacturing position to China to avoid the import tariffs. And now the Chinese are looking at removing import tariffs or at least lowering import tariffs on imports. It's not as if those manufacturers that have already moved to China are now going to move back to Europe or move to the United States, is it? They're stuck there. Uh well, I think they want to be there. I think they want to serve the market. As far as are they dominating the auto industry, the U.S. imports only about a billion dollars worth of, of, uh, of vehicles from China, and yet we export more than $10 billion. So are they dominating autos? No. I certainly don't want to trade in my car for a car that's made wholly in China. So I think this idea that they're dominating already is, is getting yeah. way ahead of ourselves by several decades. Your core uh, research is on intellectual transfer between China and us. Give us that dynamic right now. They in droves are sending their kids over here at different levels of brightness to study. Do they all go home? No, they don't, although, you know, more will go home with the changes in uh, U.S. policies. But there's lots of avenues by which technology transfer is happening, including what we call intellectual returnees. Not only the return of, of students who have received, you know, a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Arts, but of course, PhDs and highly skilled professionals. So this is happening at all levels in all sectors. It's happening in my own field, which is higher education, where the Chinese are wooing back very skilled people. Um, there's no international laws against this. You're able to uh, you know, offer higher salaries or better uh, housing subsidies to right. people if you want. So that's one way. Other ways, are, of course, are enticing uh, corporations to bring technology to China. This is something we don't really want to talk about. We want to talk about theft and other things. But many corporations do transfer technology voluntarily. The Chinese offer right. you know, ready fields for factories or for you know, high tech businesses. Um, and the, the opening up, the growth of the market there is very attractive. Let's leave it there. Uh, Professor Lovely, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mary Lovely with the Peterson Institute from our 99.1 FM studios in Washington this morning. Douglas Peebles is with us with AB Alliance Bernstein in fixed income. What do you actually do? Do you are you running money? Are you <laughs> yes. are you in the mailroom clipping coupons? What do you do for AB? Well, those two things are sort of one and the same these days. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm the chief investment officer for the fixed income group. I've been at AB uh, and its affiliates for 31 years. Now. I know that's where I want exactly where I wanted to go. You and I remember when fixed income had trouble competing with CDs and other manipulated coupon products. And then there was a point where everybody was a genius and total return was easy, easy, easy. With your wonderful three decades of experience, what's the mood this year? Is it just clip the coupon? 
and say thank you? Well, I think 2018 is really a transition year. Um, and we've had the main influence on all financial markets over the last 10 years has been monetary policy. And, and the reason I call it a transition year is we have a transition of monetary policy. And the, the Fed has uh, two levers now in which they tighten policy, and they're using both of them. They're, they're now shrinking their balance sheet, and they're obviously raising interest rates, which we saw last week. Um, I think w- what happened globally last week uh, of importance is that Draghi and team decided that uh, they were going to be more dovish for longer. And, and I think that that kept the fixed income markets under wrap, and that will probably continue to do so for the for at least for the summer. Um, but this transition is in place. And, you know, we, we Tom, we, we look back and, and say, OK, I remember when the 10 year note was was 10, 11 percent. But the five year note today is just under 3 percent. Yeah. And I think that that's what the new normal is in, in terms of what is a respectable return and can two or three percent compete for capital. Doug, are there any signs of credit stress right now? Well, I, I don't think there's any particular signs in the marketplace on, in, in terms of credit stress, but that's the worry, right? I mean, we have, we have certain signals. Uh, we use a combination of quantitative and fundamental factors. The fundamental team has been saying, rightfully so, that we are late in the credit cycle for a long period of time. Yeah. We have very, very highly levered, particularly investment-grade companies relative to history. And then a, a very important signal that we follow is the flattening of the yield curve. And that flattening of the yield curve historically has meant uh, rain in on risk because that's not a good environment for risk taking. I've heard this a lot, rain in on risk. Do you actually see that in the positioning of where some of these funds are right now? Because people will come on the program with me and they'll say, it's time to de-risk. As you've pointed out, there's a competition for capital. You can just buy treasuries at the front end. You don't have to take as much duration risk. You don't have to take as much credit risk. I hear that call a lot. Are people actually acting on it? Well, I, I think if you look at the mutual fund flows, the fixed income flows are in outflow mode right now. Uh, I'm not sure what they're doing with their money. My, my guess is they're not buying CDs. Uh, I do think that they're, they're actually more often than not moving out the risk spectrum, but not in the fixed income world. The only place where they're moving out the risk spectrum in the fixed income world is in the, the floating rate, the bank loans, the, the, the new nirvana at the moment, if you will. And, and that's because they're so afraid of interest rate risk. Um, and, and I think that when people look at bond markets and their bond investments, they really have to break it down into between what is my risk-reducing bond portfolio and what is my return-seeking bond portfolio. And bank loans, for example, are, and in, in our opinion, and should be in the return-seeking. Don't worry about uh, duration if you're a high-yield investor. Right. What you should worry about duration, which is the interest rate risk, if you're a uh, risk mitigating investor. Now, one thing that hasn't changed in this environment is the negative correlation between treasuries and risk markets. And, and our recommendation to people is with this transition in place from the central bank, particularly yeah, yeah. the Fed, move back into more balance. So don't be so afraid of duration. I don't yeah. think I don't think that that's the the, the fear that most people right. should have, even though they do. One thing we and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're way too full faith and credit focused, and then we look at high yield, and then there's the in betweeny investment grade paper. What's the in between risk look like? Well, I, I think the in between risk looks fine as long as the economy is strong. So, for example, if you look at the investment grade market. 
the investment-grade average credit quality has never been as low as it is right now. So why is that? It's not because the economy has been doing you know, so awful. It's because the average CFO in the marketplace has now decided, instead of running their balance sheet at a single A rating, mm-hmm. they want to move it down to a triple B. They're leaving it up. Yeah, they're, they're issuing bonds to buy back stock. Is that what Comcast is doing? But they're not going to issue it to buy back yeah, stock. Yeah, look, I, I think each and every company is different. I'm looking at it as a, as a macro position. And, and from a macro position, the the CFOs have been rewarded for doing this, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's just the way it's been. Will that continue? We That's why we want to rein in some so, risk. So, Doug, here's a really interesting point. You raise an important concept. You've said we're entering the latter stages of the cycle, and we could have a separate debate on where we are in the cycle, but let's assume that's true. At this point, we've got the government livering up, and you've got corporate America adding leverage as well. What does it mean when the government and corporate America add leverage this late in the cycle? Well, I, I think there's two things. I think that this, when we look at the cycle, we have to separate the credit cycle and the economic cycle. And we are, one could argue, fairly early in the economic cycle, but late in the credit cycle. And that is something that we haven't seen before. And the levering up on the government side is the second half of this grand experiment. We talked about monetary policy as the first half. The second half is we've never seen fiscal thrust this large in an economy that's already operating at full employment. So I would imagine that we're going to, you know, continue to do okay until the economy doesn't do so well. And we don't think that's for a while yet. Uh, Doug, one final question, uh, if we could, in terms of the actuarial assumption of fixed income. You mentioned 3% before. There's still a lot of people out there that just say, I can't live on that. Well, again, it goes back to how much debt has been issued. And so if we have real interest rates right now that are at 1% uh, or nominal rates at 3%, we would think that with so much debt outstanding, the old assumptions of let's say, a, a 4% real rate right. or a 5 or 6% nominal rate, they probably don't work anymore. Doug Peebles, thank you so much. Mr. Peebles with AB uh, Fixed Income uh, this morning. Without question, this is my interview of the day I might point out it may be my interview of the week, and even Carlos Gutierrez, I could suggest it could be my interview of the year. Four or five years ago, long ago and far away, the former Secretary of Commerce and I did an interview on short notice the day one immigration debate in America collapsed. And I clearly remember uh, Mr. Secretary speaking to you at that time, and we do it again today, is one First Lady, Mrs. Bush, and another first lady, Mrs. Trump, say, stop. Have you ever seen anything like what we're doing at our border, Carlos Gutierrez? Uh, I've never seen it. I've read that if we go back far enough in our history, we've had moments where families have been divided. We know that happened during slavery. It, it happened somewhat during some of the Chinese immigration. But yeah. it, it never, ever, ever is something that, uh, we can get used to the the images are heartbreaking, and it's just hard to imagine that this is yeah. the U.S. Your father was an enemy of the state of Cuba. How did you come into this country, and were you separated at the border? We flew in. We flew in as a family. 
uh, on a Pan American Airlines into Miami, and I'll tell you, we felt so welcomed. Uh, I felt like people wanted me to be here and people right. wanted me to succeed. Conservatives and those worried about the future of America in one way would say that's fine because the Goodyears were educated, et cetera, et cetera. But so many of these people that are at the border and the, the language that's used is appalling. They're not Carlos Gutierrez. Can we make a distinction at the Texas border between the, the smart, the haves, and the less fortunate and make a separation of parents and children? You know, I don't think history makes that distinction. Uh, so many immigrants came over uh, from all over the world, starting in Europe. Many were illiterate. Many had uh, very yeah. low schooling. But you know what? Their kids uh, went to school, became lawyers, and became teachers, and became business people. I believe that happens to every yeah. generation of immigrants. Full disclosure, folks, my middle name, they came over in handcuffs. It was a few years ago, John Farrell. There was a small civil war in England, I believe it was, <laughs> at the time. It was back a and few. thank goodness you came, Tom. I know, I got as far That's right. away from look at, look at Ca that. Carlos, what would we have done every morning without Tom? That's, that's a great example of the power of immigration. Yeah, or a few years. You know there's some listeners <coughs> thinking that's a great example as to why we shouldn't let people in. Well, Tom that Keen. would be that as well. <laughs> Carlos so, might not be a good argument. So tell, tell us, uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, what your Republican Party needs to do. There's two pieces of legislation in, but what leadership do you need from President Trump? How do the Republicans make this their constructive issue? Well, you know, the Republican Party is almost indistinguishable. We look more like a right-wing European party, populist, not too concerned about business, anti-immigrant, you know, every, everything that the U.S. has not been. Um, and I do think we need to get back to where we have always been, the American dream. Immigration is the American dream. Free enterprise, business. Businesses can't find enough workers. That's just, that's the first reason why we need immigration. But um, it is indistinguishable, and we have to get back. And I think this is all about leadership, Tom. Uh, you know, the Democrats had President Obama. He changed the party. It looked like he had changed the trend of history. Well, now we have President Trump. Uh, it's all about leadership, and it's not going to happen right. inside the party. It's going to happen through the leadership of one person. In the coming days, do you think that this could rupture his relationship with his attorney general, who's led the charge on this? Uh, it could. It it could uh, it could happen because you know it's interesting that everyone but the president is taking responsibility for this. So if he is looking for a scapegoat, there's no one better than Jeff Sessions, yeah. given that they already have a uh, a very strained relationship. But mm -hmm. uh, I just don't see how this can continue, and the photographs will continue. We've all seen some of the photographs that have come out today, and that's you know it's going to be the cover of magazines all over the world, the cover of newspapers. This isn't good for right. us. Give us an update. One final question, if you would, and we're saying with the politics with Carlos Gutierrez. On Cuba and the transfer from a generational Castro regime, are you optimistic that Cuba can find uh, a place beyond the two Castros? Yes, I, I believe that Cuba is going through gradual change, but it is change. And they will continue to go down that direction. Uh, they will continue to, to, ha to, to allow private businesses. I think that's pretty much irreversible. The irony is that, you know, we're trying to make friends with North Korea, but here's Cuba going 
uh, in, a, in the right direction economically. They're 90 miles away, and we've got crippling sanctions on Cuba. So uh, it's very contradictory. Mm-hmm. Greatly honored to have you with us today, Secretary Gutierrez. Thank you. Always of course, a pleasure. Of course, for the Commerce, uh, just a, a, a timely and important discussion on these issues. Uh, John, I can certainly say the combination of the morning note from Mr. Vallier and the morning note from Mr. Allen was stunning. The two together was absolutely stunning. Yeah, and I think I domest- wasn't prepared d- domestically for it. speaking, this is something that's sort of overtaken everything else. I mean, overtook yeah. trade for sure very quickly on Friday and through the weekend, Tom. Yeah, that was a wonderful conversation. You can hear Carlos Gutierrez. We'll do that on our podcast out in a bit. You can talk to Paul Sweeney for somewhere between two, three, and even four hours today on any number of topics. I want to touch on a couple topics uh, here and then get over, of course, to the business of Fox, Disney, and Comcast. Paul, the, the, the soccer on TV is incredibly controlled by FIFA. The video, and they pay huge fees, Fox and Telemundo and all that. Is that going to change by the time the next World Cup comes around? No, I think the uh, you know World Cup rights, sports rights globally, but uh, certainly the NFL in the U.S. and uh, Premier League in, in, in the U.K. and then World Cup rights uh, across the globe continue to go up in value. You know, I think the rate of increase uh, might be slowing, and, and the reason I say that is because the pay TV business in much of the Western world is slowing, and so the fee, you know the the fees that these networks can charge consumers or pass along to consumers, I think, have, are peaking, if not completely peaked, as in the U.S. So. How much more can ESPN or Fox afford to pay for U.S. rights, uh, I think, remains to be seen. But, you know, we've certainly been in an environment with tremendous uh, rights inflation. And, uh, you know, we just don't really see any end in sight at the moment. But, you know, you could certainly look at over the next four to five years and and, and expect to see at least the rate of growth slow. I mean, I saw Germany, Mexico, the Germany, in, in Germany, rather, they had an 81 share, which is a number I can't even fathom. That, that that's so yep, exactly. high. It's so high. Is this where the stupid money comes in? The Amazons and the rest of them with gajillions of inflated dollars. Do they come in and yeah, outbid think, these typical carriers? Yeah, I, I think you will. I think you know Amazon dipped their toe into the English Premier League. Uh, they've dipped their toe into NFL yeah. as Facebook and some others. And <clears throat> you know, I think the belief is from uh, certainly from the leagues around the world is to the extent the ESPNs and the Foxes of the world step back a little bit because right. their businesses are challenged. Income uh, will be that the technology companies with you know, right. bottomless pockets, and I think that's the, the hope for the leagues and the players and the teams and, and all, all right. that. Okay, next theme before Disney, Fox, Comcast. The Incredibles brought in 180 gajillion dollars. You know they're going to bring in double, triple that over time. I don't know if it's going to be the biggest movie ever. I'll let you decide, Paul. <laughs> who gets that money when they say The Incredibles two brings in 180 million? How is that divided up? Yeah, well, roughly half goes to the theater distributors in the U.S. Uh, outside the U.S., uh, probably uh, more than half goes, probably 60 to 70 percent goes to the theater distributors. The remainder goes to the studio, and then the studio takes the money, and then the creative 
uh, Hollywood accounting comes in, and uh, it's always a question if you're a star and you have back end of a movie, how much do I get for a movie that made a billion dollars? And um, but that's where it kind of gets split up between the theater operators and the studio operators. So you know, you know, it's been a this Incredibles two was just you know it was a good first mo- movie, a long time between the first and second movie, and they were really surprised about how strong the second installment was. And so the ninety million that you're presuming in the U.S. went to, quote-unquote, the studio, I believe Disney Pixar. You as a pro really don't know how that's divvied up, do you? It, it, it's, it's tough, <clears throat> but the the, uh, the studio at the, the Walt Disney Studios has some of the highest margins in, in the industry, so they're able to, you know, uh, they finance most of their deals uh, themselves because they're very, very sure in the long-term profitability of those yeah. uh, things, and that allows them to take higher cuts of, of the movie. And so what we've seen over time is that Disney, right. the studio, is one of the more profitable studios in Hollywood. Right. Conversely, Paramount's one of the, the yeah. least profitable. Uh, a good colleague of ours in giving us wisdom is Brian Weezer over at Pivotal. He goes to a sell today on Disney. Paul Sweeney, I don't want you to do buy, hold, sell, but the idea of Fox Moonshot, they're the one in play, Disney Moonshot relative to Comcast. Let's go to the other side of the equation. Is Comcast dirt cheap? Uh, Comcast is, is pretty cheap, but the, the, one of the reasons, particularly on a free cash flow basis, but one of the reasons it is cheap is because investors are concerned that they are going to overpay for content, most notably 21st Century Fox and maybe Sky. Uh, they're using all cash, um, and I think the concern is that's going to lever up their balance sheet, really retard their ability to invest in their core business going forward, and certainly reduce the, the amount of money they have for buying right. back stock, which is what Comcast shareholders have really become accustomed to. How do you and Bloomberg Intelligence respond? to what you hear from the sell side, in this case, Moffat and Nathanson, that, you know, that's great if you're going to lever up, lever up and just either go private or, you know, buy back a ton of stock. How do you yeah, respond was, to that? Yeah, it would certainly be more creative, one, one could argue, buying Comcast down here than, than buying uh, you know, 21st Century Fox. But, of course, if you're Brian Roberts, you're thinking very long-term. You're thinking that your company is going to be one of the two right. or three companies out of the media world to really compete against the the Netflixes and the Googles and the Facebooks, and it's it's, it's really between him and Bob Iger, and uh, yeah. you know we'll see who wins at the end of the day. So they're they're in an auction room, like at Sotheby's or Crispy's, fine, and Christie's, and and they're auctioning. Comcast has clearly made the decision, as you say, to lever up. Is that Disney's wild card? They go the Comcast way, and we have a balance sheet free for all. Yeah, we've actually modeled out the current Disney deal, the all-stock deal for Fox, and we actually have it a little bit dilutive to uh, Disney's earnings. And so it's kind of the the weird math here is that the more cash that they put in to the extent they want to put in cash, it actually becomes less dilutive and actually becomes a little bit accretive the more debt they put on. Um, So I think um, uh, Disney has a lot more flexibility in 21st Century Fox from a balance sheet perspective. So, and, and, And again, I also make the point that even though Brian Roberts is a, obviously a very credible buyer and really wants these assets. I think Disney and Bob Iger want them just a little bit more. I mean, this is fascinating, folks. And what Mr. Sweeney goes to there was, you know, not my informed back of the envelope, but my hunch. And that the real surprise here is they can be the same and just lever up. And I mean, to be clear here, Disney's got tons of room to lever up, don't they? Yeah, they, they really do. So Comcast is a little bit more levered, but... Um, and if they were to do an all-cash deal as currently structured, it would take them north of four times cash, debt to cash flow, which is higher than where they like to be, higher than where the market likes them to be. They like to be down around two times. 
even if, if uh, Disney were to put half this deal in cash, it'd still be just about a little bit less than three times mm-hmm. that the cash flow. So they have much more financial right. flexibility. I think they have strategic imperative a little bit more. But, you know, you can't discount Comcast at all. Uh, Brian Roberts is in a very aggressive strategic thinker, and I don't think he'll walk away. I think there will be several rounds of bidding here. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think Disney walks away with it. Why, why are there several rounds? I mean, if you extrapolate out, I mean, this is just, li- you know, linear algebra folks on a logarithmic y-axis. You extrapolate it out, Paul, and you come to a terminal value point and you just say, look, here's our stupid bid. I mean, why go through multiple tranches of bidding? Yeah, it, that, that might happen. They might put their, you know, best and final offers on, on the table. Yeah. Um, I think there might be some discussions behind the, the scenes about maybe carving up some of the assets of 21st Century and Sky. That might, you know, allow them to walk away each with a little bit of uh, victory. But I don't think that's going to be the case. I think both of these bidders here want the yeah. whole enchilada, including Sky. Um, and right. so I think there's going to be lots of mechanisms back and <clears throat> forth. So so are you leaving today, Paul, at 145 to watch Tunisia, England, like everyone else? I'm actually in London as, as we speak. So I oh, so you're spot. going to be in an evening spot. I didn't know you were in London. Farrell right. has a doctor's appointment at 145. Yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> he does. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much. Evening viewing of uh, Tunisia, England, probably over at the Ned, which is like right next to our gorgeous new offices. And I'm sure that's where Mr. Sweeney is ensconced in at, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.